Hey, it's John. Um, we're going to get right to the show, but I just had a quick favor to ask of you. Not asking for money. We just want you to share this show. If you like what you're hearing, please share it. Share it on Facebook. Share it on Twitter. Share it on Instagram. Share it wherever you have an audience. Because we want your audience to hear what you're enjoying. So if you like what we're doing, please put it out there. Thanks. Here's the show. You're listening to 103.7 WPVM LP Asheville. And this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this is Advanced Bass. You tried to summon Satan, but screwed up the incantation. Left an open portal on your parents' kitchen wall And the demons you released that day Stayed with you long you were Screaming in your ear, kill them all You can worry about the future You can worry about the past You can worry about how long this curse is gonna last You were walking through the park one night Angry looking for a fight And you heard a busker playing an accordion He stuck him twice and down he fell Sealed your passage straight to hell And you knew at once that you would kill again You can worry about the future You can worry about the past You can worry about how long This loneliness will last subject. We may inherit our father's blue eyes or our mother's curly hair, and if we aren't careful, we can inherit their tempers or submissive attitudes or their bad habits. The same goes for our behavior in the kitchen. For most of us, many of the foods we love are built upon learned behaviors, instincts that we inherited from our childhood, from our families. For Houston's Annalee Newton, that inheritance stretches far beyond dominant or recessive genes, where the more nuanced lessons of her family's cooking techniques find themselves seeping into every aspect of her life. Here's Brooke German reading Annalie's story, Coming Apart, here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. Nesbitt, Mississippi, 1990. It's Mother's Day, and Dad is in the kitchen making eggs benedict for Mom, who is still upstairs asleep in bed. The entire house smells like coffee and frying Canadian bacon. The sun is streaming through the windows at an early morning angle. And the dust from the carpeted stairs is revealed in the light, floating leisurely in all directions, as if gravity didn't exist. The breakfast smells draw my sister, Hillary, and me from our bedroom. Still in our pajamas, we each climb onto our bar stool around the kitchen island. It's an early Sunday morning in May. The best time to go out and look for spider webs, pearled with dew, to pick apart with a stick. Also, the best time to pluck the wild purple violets on the hillside by the firewood stack and slowly tear the flowers apart into precise pieces. But this morning, Dad is cooking breakfast in the kitchen, and he is happy. He is whistling an ancient Confederate battle song, and his big hands are slicing a lemon in half. As his knife bites into the peel, bits of fragrant oil erupt into the steam from Dad's coffee. 
he pours lemon juice into a saucepan and furiously whips the contents. Focused, intent, and bent over the stove to avoid hitting his towering head on the light in the middle of the kitchen. He stops. Do you want orange juice, girls? Dad asks. Hillary and I nod. Dad reaches into the refrigerator and grabs the orange juice. It's a reconstituted orange juice from a frozen can, and it's in a plastic pitcher. He also grabs a dark glass bottle. Dad pours two glasses of orange juice for us. Then he peels silver and gold from the mouth of the glass bottle and twists the top. A popping and fizzing, and Dad pours gold effervescent champagne into a cut wine glass. I watch the bubbles racing to the surface of the glass until they become obscured by condensation. Can I taste it, Dad? I ask. All right, just a little taste. The sparkling wine shoots up my nose before it's even in my mouth. I touch my lips to it and then hand the cup to Hillary. Even worse than coffee, I tell her. Dad is constructing Mom's breakfast onto a white ceramic plate. The two halves of an English muffin, side by side, a slice of Canadian bacon on each half, a poached egg over each slice of Canadian bacon, a spoonful of rich buttery yellow sauce over each egg, sliced canned mushrooms heated in the microwave sprinkled over the hollandaise sauce, canned asparagus on the side of the plate dressed in a more modest drizzle of sauce. All of the different ingredients from different pans and plates come together. And that, I ask, pointing at the fluffy butter-colored sauce. Can I try that? No way. I don't think you're going to like it, Annie. This is grown-up food, Dad says. Please! How do you know I won't like it? Well, I guess I don't know. Dad dips a teaspoon into the pot of hollandaise sauce, and the sauce clings to all sides of the spoon. Here you go. I lick the spoon. In the same way, the color can set a part of our dreams on fire and ensure that we remember it in the morning, that first taste of hollandaise sauce lights this moment in my memory. Without the taste of hollandaise, this memory would ebb away and be lost in the flow of my days of living. Instead, this scene, this day, lasts inside of me and makes up a part of the landscape of myself. Do you like it? Hillary is asking. I'm not sure if I like it or not, but I nod. It is just so much more of a taste than the taste of my favorite childhood foods. Chicken and noodle soup, macaroni and cheese, pork chops. I hand Hillary the spoon. She shakes her head. What about flowers? Hillary says. We don't have any, Dad says. Hillary and I race outside in our bare feet to harvest violets. We also rip up a few handfuls of moss, some larger tiered purple bell flowers, and the tiniest little white and pink four-petal blossoms, even smaller than a pebble. We race back to the kitchen and place our blossoms around the white plate, the cup filled with black coffee and the champagne glass. Dad picks up the tray. I don't know if this is going to work. Can you help me, girls? He hands the black coffee to Hillary and the champagne to me. Dad has muddied the champagne bubbles with orange juice. We each carry our cups in both hands and we follow Dad to the stairs. Our staircase has 12 stairs of brown carpet. Ten of the stairs climb up the front side of the house like a spine to the second story, and two jut out from the wall. There is a square platform area under a window, between the second and third stairs. Hillary and I take every stair slowly, all of our attention on not spilling the liquid from our glasses. And then, Dad opens the door. Happy Mother's Day, Dad says. Happy Mother's Day, Mom! Hillary and I say before we relinquish our cups into Mom's hands. Everyone is smiling. And then, the memory goes dark, like a curtain dropping on the perfect, discreet scene. When Dad made hollandaise sauce, he was making an emulsion, an implausible mixture of two immiscible substances. He was mixing a polar liquid with a nonpolar liquid by adding lemon juice to melted butter. Polar and nonpolar liquids do not mix. They cannot mix. If you whisk water and oil together, it will seem as if the two substances have mixed. The water droplets will be suspended temporarily in the oil, and the mixture will seem uniform. After a few minutes, the water and the oil will separate again. The oil is hydrophobic and fears the water. The egg yolks that Dad whipped into the butter and lemon juice worked as an emulsifier, the missing link that allows the oil and water to mix. The egg yolks contain lecithin, a molecule that has a water-loving end and a water-fearing end. The water-loving end of the egg yolks binds with the lemon juice, and the water-fearing end binds with the butter. And then you can just add a little bit of heat, and the two unmixable liquids become one. 
the oil and water come together and they stay together. Nesbitt, Mississippi, 1995. We are waiting around a silent dinner table for dad to come home. All of the food is ready. Mom has made steak and Vicky rice. Vicky rice is also made using a polar liquid and a non-polar liquid, but with no emulsifier. Earlier, mom had put one cup of white rice, two cans of beef consomme, and one can of drained canned mushrooms into a casserole dish and baked it at 350 degrees until the rice absorbed all the consomme and is coated with the melted butter. This recipe is dad's recipe, but mom makes it even more than he does these days. This is the dish she brings to the church potluck every fourth Sunday. Dad doesn't go to church. Moving clockwise around the kitchen island, there is an empty stool with a dinner plate loaded down with food in front of it. Then mom, sitting on her stool, staring at the front door. Then me, then Hillary. Then Josh's empty seat. Our brother Josh is eight years older than Hillary and me. He's in high school and he rarely eats dinner at our house anymore. He calls on the landline and tells mom that he's going to be eating dinner next door or at one of his baseball teammates' houses. It seems like he just goes from house to house on a kind of schedule. Once every month or so, he'll eat at home, but it's usually when dad's out of town on business. My dad is not Josh's dad. Hillary and I are looking down at our plates. It's summertime, and we are bigger. Now I can race up the stairs to my bedroom two at a time, and I'm constantly tripping over my lanky legs. The summer cacophony of crickets pours through the screen door. And every once in a while, a late lightning bug flashes on the porch. Headlights flare in through the front windows, and soon the heavy wood front door creaks open and slams shut. Dad's finally home from the golf course, but Mom isn't happy to see him. When Dad walks into the kitchen, I can smell the coarse light and sweat. He walks to the refrigerator, grabs a beer, and then walks over to Mom. Hey, honey, Dad says, and bends over to kiss her on the cheek. But Mom turns away. We can eat now, girls, she says. Hillary and I pick up our forks. We still don't eat. Dad sits down in his place at the table. He loves steak. Well, what do we have here? This looks pretty good. Did you sear the sirloin at high heat first? What does it even matter? Everything's cold, Mom says. What do you mean, what does it matter? Of course it matters. It always matters, Dad says. No, apparently it doesn't matter. Being here, being home, with me, with your children, none of it matters to you. Why do I even bother to cook? I should have never cooked dinner. I should never have had children with you, Dad says. Mom is crying. She walks up the 12 stairs and slams her bedroom door shut. Dad drinks down the rest of his can of beer without coming up for air, smashes it in his hands, and walks out the front door. Hillary and I are alone at the table. We start eating the cold Vicky rice and feeding pieces of the gristle to our dog, Trixie, under the table. There is no one left to see us and scold us. Eggs are a difficult ingredient to work with. I have this on good authority from Josh, my brother, who grew up to become a chef, and Julia Child, my father's favorite cook. According to Josh, the two most difficult ingredients to master are eggs and potatoes. If you can learn to exploit all the different manifestations of the protein in eggs and the starches in potatoes, you are on your way to becoming a classically trained French chef. Julia Child agrees. In her book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, she writes, We feel it is of great importance that you learn how to make hollandaise by hand. For part of every good cook's general knowledge is a thorough familiarity with the vagaries of egg yolks under all conditions. To make hollandaise sauce, there must be heat, but there mustn't be too much heat. When Dad taught me how to make hollandaise sauce, he always monitored the process. He would fiddle with the heat, tell me to take the pot off the burner, add more lemon juice, small things that didn't seem to matter until I was alone in the kitchen trying to make my own holiday sauce and failing. When the holiday sauce is exposed to too much heat, it curdles. It breaks apart into pieces with different composition. The sauce separates. There's only a tiny window after emulsification and before curdling when the sauce can come together as a homogeneous mixture. Hattiesburg, Mississippi, 2007. I am in college, and I'm making Eggs Benedict for my birthday brunch. It's just me and a boy that I love in our downtown loft apartment. The mushrooms, fresh this time, are sliced and sautéed in butter. The asparagus is gently browning into crisp nuttiness in the oven. The 
eggs are poached, the lemons are squeezed, the butter is clarified, and I am whipping the contents of the saucepan like a mad woman. The moment of emulsification never seems to come. One minute the butter and the eggs are separate, the next minute they are curdled. That moment of becoming one cohesive, unified sauce doesn't ever happen. I turn off the stove. I look down at the pot. The knobby contents seem to congeal and cloud over even more as the heat leaves. The boy comes over to look into the pot. Is that what it's supposed to look like? He asks. I shake my head. Not even close. Well, baby, let's just go out to eat. I'll buy you breakfast somewhere. I shake my head again. You know, I, I think I just need a minute. I pick up my glass of champagne and the rest of the bottle and take it out into the concrete courtyard. I bask under the late August sun and feel it radiating onto me from every direction. The noon train to New Orleans shrieks by, the cars clanging together as it comes to a stop at the depot down the road. Three months later, I find my own apartment and move out. The boy that I love becomes the boy that I loved, and we separate. I took a cooking class in college, and one day my cooking teacher told me to burn the roux, a flour and butter mixture that can become the basis for milk gravy or gumbo. Excuse me, I said. You want me to destroy this? I sure do, she said. But why, I asked. It's the only way you'll be able to understand all the stages. The peanut butter stage, the chocolate stage, and the burned trash stage. You need to be able to see the progression of the effects of heat on the roux before you can master it. I've never ruined any food on purpose before. Only by mistake. There are no mistakes in the kitchen, Annie. Only learning experiences. Livingston, Texas, 2010. It's Christmas, and I'm helping Dad cook hollandaise sauce for the Christmas dinner. He and Mom are both divorced and remarried to new people. Dad changes up his Christmas menu every year. Sometimes it'll be a German Christmas dinner, sometimes Italian. This year, it's steak and asparagus with hollandaise sauce. He is outside grilling enough steaks for 12 people, and I'm inside making the hollandaise sauce. I am being very, very careful. I'm hoping that I've learned from my past mistakes. The heat is on low, and I am violently whipping the contents of the saucepan. I whip and whip and whip, and nothing is happening. Nothing happening is better than curdling, but I am still just staring down at a pot of raw egg yolks and butter. After a quarter of an hour or so, I take the pot completely off the heat and ask Dad for help. He looks down into the pot, cranks up the heat to medium, and puts the pot right down on the burner. Wait, isn't it going to curdle? That has to be too much heat. He shrugged. We'll see. The mixture began to puff up and lighten in color. After it had almost doubled in size, Dad turned off the burner and moved the saucepan to a pot holder. The hollandaise was emulsified. To analyze is to break down a thing or an idea into smaller parts in order to try to come to a deeper understanding. Like when I was a little girl, tearing apart the violets by the fire stack. I didn't just rip them into shreds. It wasn't an act of destruction. I slowly plucked off each flower and leaf until the structure was naked. Then I used my thumbnail to slice open the little package filled with clear particles of living sand granules. I tore apart the violet to understand how it worked. But did I really learn how the flower worked? What do I understand about a flower now that I know what the insides look like? What if I didn't learn anything at all from burning the rue? And I just keep tearing apart flowers and burning rue forever? Surely growth isn't something that we just get by a virtue of being alive. Analysis is easy. Tearing something apart is as natural as breathing. It's the bringing separate things together that is hard, maybe impossible. Synthesis is the problem of life, or maybe it's just my problem. Houston, Texas, 2013. Here I am with another boy that I love, making him eggs Benedict again. This time, I'm making it for his birthday brunch in the kitchen he shares with his two roommates. He has never eaten eggs Benedict before. You have to understand, it might not turn out. I've ruined more hollandaise sauces than I've cooked successfully. I'll help you, says the boy. Let's give it a try. So he's in the kitchen beside me, snapping the wooden ends off the asparagus and slicing mushrooms. 
I tell him all about eggs and coagulation and emulsification, and he fills up my champagne glass. I clarify the butter and start to think, what does it matter if it curdles? So what if it doesn't work out? We are here, at this moment, cooking together, drinking together. I start to add the hot clarified butter to the lemon juice and egg yolk in a saucepan, and the boy that I love stirs. Slowly, I trickle in the butter and put the saucepan on low heat. I watch as the color starts to lighten and the mixture puffs up. I turn off the heat and place a teaspoon in the sauce. The sauce clings to all sides of the teaspoon. It's perfect. Wait, wait, just wait a minute, I say to the boy. What? Are you afraid I won't like it? He asks me. No, I'm afraid you will like it and you'll love me forever even if you shouldn't. He looks up at me. I'll risk it, says the boy. I hand him the spoon. talk about when you talk about Michael Twitty. There's this two James Beard Awards and his Kirkus Prize nomination for his book The Cooking Gene, which traces the history of Southern food and his own family heritage from slave plantations in the Southern U.S. to its origins in West Africa. Then there's the compelling narrative of his personal journey as an African-American gay and Jewish man in cultures that may not be accustomed to such a combination. There's also a letter he wrote to Paula Dean asking her to come out and cook with him to learn what Southern food is really all about after her racist meltdown. And then there's the slew of other measured Twitter responses to white Southern food writers criticizing him for just daring to talk about the roots of Southern food beyond the Delta and the Low Country. But I often find that it's really easy to talk about Michael Twitty, but it's something else entirely to talk to Michael Twitty. He's a complicated man, and one that thinks on a level worthy of those accolades. I got the chance to catch up with him ahead of his September lecture at UNCA. Catch me up, man. What's been going on? Because I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm seeing everything you're doing on the on the social medias, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. I, you know, back then I was still trying to get together. You know. Fix up the cooking gene, and I, you know, had really made, you know, ro- you know, roads across the south. I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out how that actually all went down. Um, you know, yeah. you, you look back and you go, how did, how did I make that happen? You know, how did how did things go from day to day? You know, it's just. It's a lot. It's a lot. One of the things that I really like about watching your story unfold has been like how you had this idea of what this book was going to be. And then you slowly like had the epiphanies and you could kind of watch you having the epiphanies as it unfolded. Mm -hmm. And Uh, like, yeah. And then it just became this thing that was, I think even bigger than you anticipated it being. And I don't know. There, there seemed to be a lot of revelations there. There seemed to be a lot of little apocalypses for you in, in coming, coming into this mm-hmm. understanding of what the cooking gene was, you know? Yes. Yes. And I think that, and I think that for me, um, I can't wait for it to get to the point where, 
you know, it's beyond the scope of where it is now. And when I let me translate that for you. One of the issues that I faced time and time again when I first started out was the, yeah, that's a great idea, but you? <laughs> you know, people would literally go and look over my shoulder and go, so who else is doing this? Right. And I immediately got the message that that wasn't a nice thing to say. Right. Or even think. But it was kind of like, okay, I love this. I just really don't like the package that's coming to me in. Right. So I can't wait for this to get to the point where somebody goes, this is foundational. Then I, then I think, Jonathan, I don't really feel like I've done but when I look Don't you back, feel like a James someone, Beard award is kind of in no, the, no, this is foundational it, statement. To me, it's like to me, it's like until people like me can who are so different and so out of the box and so not off the shelf. You know, look, look James James Beard himself. It right. he had to like go. He well, he lived to be almost ninety years old. He was fat, he was gay, when gay was illegal. Right. He got kicked out of school for being gay. Yeah. He was not known to be the most attractive man in the world. He was smart, he was, he was, but he was, he, he, people thought he was oafy. Right. And yet he died, you know, the 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 king of American food, right? With an award to his name and a foundation and a and a restaurant uh, a center and all the other stuff you know that came from his legacy, his life. I mean, I hope that before I'm gone, I can see that. But I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that you know he would be tickled and thrilled <laughs> to see all the things that have come out of his legacy, in his life. Yeah. And not just the books he wrote and, you know, his appearance of a Julia Child and all this stuff. Yeah. No, it's 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 interesting. So I I got to profile Ronnie Lundy a while back, right before she won her James Beard, which was last year's James Beard Award before before you got this one. Mm -hmm. and it's just really interesting because I I feel like this that's these are two back to back James Beard Awards for books that really talk about underrepresented populations, underrepresented people, and parts of culture that we like to sweep under the rug. Mainly Ronnie's was about kind of the class warfare on Appalachia. And right. yours has just been about where our food actually comes from. And that's a those are some big topics that I think are largely ignored in our culinary history. And uh, I don't know, man. Like, what's it? What's this is kind of the the time to step forward on this like you you really landed in the right spot at the right time on this what's this what's i don't know because, what do you say because for years because for years i was saying you got to pay attention to the people yeah and the pushback was no it's all about the food it's all about the food porn it's all about the pretty shot of the food it's all about the food man the taste the taste the taste the taste the food the ingredient a technique <laughs> right and I said, no, it really is about the people. It's going to be more and more about the people. The more and more people, you know, I realize I'm not the only voice in this. And the fact of the matter is that's great because all those voices together had a resounding shout. You know, it's, it's you know, a cookbook is great. But, you know, I decided not to write a cookbook because cookbooks, quite frankly, are not remunerative. Right. And... They also only tell you part of the story. I mean, I realize there are people like you and I and others who can read a cookbook like a novel. Right. We can read that cookbook and see things in that cookbook that, that other people cannot see, and therefore they pile up in our offices and in our kitchens. And it's owning a cookbook that someone's done is like, you know, having a... It's like that movie. It was the Inner Space, where they travel inside the it travels inside the body of another. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Now, at a certain point, like, a cookbook's only good for just referencing a recipe. Like, everybody reads the introduction of a cookbook once and then puts it down and they never pick it back up again. That's and right. It's not useful after that. And I feel like that's something that's really different about both your book and, and Ronnie's book was those are those are stories like the there's so many words before each recipe like there's so many things going into the food there's it's it's the culture there's so years ago brian eno the musician spoke at uh at moogfest and in his lecture he lectured on culture and he said that uh culture is all the things we don't have to do you have to cut your hair you don't have to have a mohawk you have to eat. You don't have to eat foie gras. But those things that we do on top of what we what we have to do, the ways we modify what we have to do, are what define our culture. And I think that, like... Wow, I like that a lot. Yeah, I've always really loved that, and I've always really come back to it because I think it's really grounding in the aspect of what I do is I try to write about food and food as a part of culture and i try to cover culture as a consumable thing that is something that defines us in our moment and i don't know man what are you seeing as like so you've done these trips you've gone to africa and back you've documented the history of your culture what are what are you seeing as your culture now what is that's a great question um global i think i finally so out of that out of that mold where um I think black food my food, black food, global food is all the same. I uh, for me, you know, I was watching uh, this is kind of a weird kind of off ramp thing, but it does make sense, I promise. <laughs> I was watching I was watching a snippet of like the newest Janet Jackson video. Yeah. And I noticed how beautifully she weaves together, you know, Janet Jackson has, has always had over-the-top, you know, videos, right? right but she right. beautifully weaves together Africa, the West Indies, Brazil, the Caribbean, Black London, Black Harlem, the South. And just because she's showing the dancing and the music and the aesthetics and the, and the shades of brown and, 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 and black. And it's just like, yeah, we're, this, is, this is who we are now. We are yeah. Wakanda, our Harlem, we are L.A., we are uh, Johannesburg, we are black people in Amsterdam and London and in and, and Rome, and, and we are our allies and our neighbors and all of this woven together. We, are, we're, we have no excuse not to be global. Right. And so, so as I'm jamming to this, like, video with all these different kinds of Afro beats, from across the planet, I'm thinking about how the food thing, as well. We have now we have African chefs learning from Gullah Geechee chefs. <laughs> wow, we that's got awesome. West Indian, right? <laughs> we got West Indian chefs, you know, learning from Brazilians. We got people over here going to Africa. I mean, the, our next culinary pilgrimage was going to be in March. It's going to easily have 10 to 14 black chefs from America who have never wow. been to Africa. That's incredible. So this is the thing now. I mean, this is, I mean, if there's anything I'm proud of more than anything else, it's the fact that all these chefs now are getting their DNA done. Mm -hmm. They're finding out where the people came from in the continent. Mm -hmm. They are making the pilgrimage on their own or with me or with somebody else. And they are, they are they're looking at their own cooking and going, how can I make my cooking speak to this new revelation about where I fit in a larger, larger world? Right. That to right. me is, that to me is the gold, the accomplishment, the, the everything. Because up to this point, one of the things that really handicapped us as a people was this feeling of being cultural orphans. Hmm. Not truly African, not truly Western. Right. You know, totally, totally critical 
and central to what it means to be an American. Yeah. And yet denied the full privileges and rights and sensibilities of being an American. Right. I remember talking to you the last time and you're talking about how it was just that one of the big problems was that like we haven't made a space for people that were born and bred here to feel American that come out of black culture. Um, do you feel like this trip has changed that view in, in, in any way? I think one of the things that people need to really get a grip on and, and realize is that we, if there's a part of us that feels not at, not at ease or rooted here, it's because we never will be. Yeah. And I think that this is a, and, 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 and anybody who goes, well, you could solve that, change your attitude. All I say is we fought wars for this country. We have died yeah. for this country. Um, we have put taxes and money and resources that were gained and lost in this country. And yet it is unavoidable that sense of that generational pull because of exile is, is unavoidable. And I see it even in the kids, and I use that term loosely, who don't want anything more than their corner. Right. In, in them, even in them is this gene that goes, you ain't really supposed to be here. Yeah. And it's, and it's something, there's something deep about it. Um, and at the same time, you, you realize what a home that you've made in America is, but especially the South. I mean, I liken going to West Africa like a person should look at it like going back, going back down home to the country and see their family. Right. That the roads, the feeling, the, the air, the, the way the morning begins, the way the evening shapes up. I mean, for a lot of contemporary West Africans, they're very concerned that we should see Accra. We should see Lagos. We should see Dakar. We should see right. the capital cities where there's all this life and all these people and millions of people and pointing you towards the culture. Yes. And it's like, okay, I get that. And I understand and appreciate it. But for the vast majority of African Americans, to see that is, is, is cool. But we want the village. This brings up an interesting thing that I was curious about too. Like, how did your Judaism affect your experience in Africa? Was I think the most important thing in Africa was, you know, there is the there's the spirit, the religion, the spirituality of your whatever your home religion is, and then there's the yeah. spirituality that's always been there. <laughs> the 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 libations, the ancestors, these little these little gestures of gratitude and thanks and and awe right. that make up their spirituality there. And I think people um Africa's not like Europe in the sense of you're Catholic, you're Orthodox, you're Protestant. No, Africa's like, look, we all have to acknowledge the ancestors. We all have to acknowledge the spirits of the land. We all have to acknowledge the creator. It doesn't matter what the religion you... The tribes cross-pollinate a little more. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what labels you put on it. Yeah. It is your responsibility. When you walk into a room, you honor the elders, because the elders are going to be the next ones to become the ancestors. Yeah. It's very serious. When you deal with babies, you got to treat babies nice, because babies are the ancestors reincarnated. Huh. One of the most powerful things I ever saw in Africa was when we went to the bush. We went to the um, the reserve in Senegal because you know, people think you see animals all over. Sorta. It's not like it's not like Africa's like the Lion King. <laughs> but there was something very special. We went out to the bush and we saw. I took a picture of it. We saw a trunk from a baobab tree, one of the most okay. important trees in Africa. Oh, yeah. It was filled with the skulls of human beings. 
Well, uh, and those skulls were not just any skulls. They were a line, a family line of griots, of storytellers, of bards that went back millennia. And the reason why they bury them in the baobab tree, which is hollow anyhow, it hollows out as it gets older. Remember, it stores water. The reason why they put them in the trees because two reasons. They were never, they're not the same class as the peasants. The peasants work the land. You work the land, you go in the land. But the storytellers, the griots, the bards, are the link between the the person, the heaven, and the earth. Hmm. They are the ones who tell us who our roots are. Yeah. So that our branches can grow. So the symbolism of burying them inside the tree with the roots are deep, but the branches push ever heaven upward is very powerful and central to many, many, many West African cultures. Mm-hmm. So to see that this is where this is where the this is where the people who keep the history and the religion go into the heart of this ancient tree. It was it was um it was beyond just it, it shaped it shaped it reshaped my life. Yeah. Well, you're one of the storytellers. Yeah. yeah, that's when I realized I was. That was John talking to author and historian Michael Twitty. You can find his James Beard award-winning book, The Cooking Gene, wherever books are sold. Honest to goodness, the bars weren't open this morning. They must have been voting for your president or something.
I have cast iron insecurity. I should clarify. I don't mean that my insecurity can be classified as unassailably robust, although that is also true from time to time. What I mean is that I am chronically insecure about my ability to properly use cast iron. Look around. Blogs the interwebs over will tell you that cast iron is the Cadillac of the cooktop, as essential as a good knife, as classic as Burr Blanc. Once properly seasoned, they say, cast iron is better than nonstick. Everything that touches its black satin surface glissades right off like Olympic ice skaters. Sugars, proteins, fats, any molecule you might ever think to sear or saute rides a thin cushion of hot oil and virtue around the pan. Little smirking hovercrafts that prove your skill and worth as a cook and as a human being. Wipe it out with a bit of paper towel and peer into its inky depths to take the measure of your soul. It begins to feel like some sort of bizarre test with vague but dire consequences for failure. If food sticks to that non-stick-if-you're-doing-it-right surface, what happens? Revocation of kitchen privileges? Public rebuke in the back pages of Saveur? The ghosts of Julia Child and James Beard materialize, looks of curdling disappointment on their spectral faces. The stakes feel high. But what happens if you can't find the on-ramp for that food never sticks, just wipe it out because food never sticks cycle? So when I find myself scraping away at a layer of egg or the gooey resin left after prying up the last bits of sausage, is it odd that I take it all personally? I'll be honest, I have cried a few times over a pan, the tears stinging all the more because I remember the moments of triumph when my eggs practically slithered out of the pan of their own accord, so silky and perfect and Pinterest-worthy was my pan. It's likely that I'm still just getting the hang of the temperature on my rented house's cranky old stove. It's not reasonable to compare my cast iron with its mere years of seasoning to my mother's black and shiny as volcanic glass after decades of use. It's logical to acknowledge that my clearance-priced pans are not in the same league as the $200 works of art I see written up in magazines, handmade by a mustachioed man with tattoos and a leather apron flanked by a grinning cattle dog, craft beer in hand. There are many perfectly sound reasons for not yet having mastered this particular skill. And yet, here I am, weeping into my hash browns. Incompetence is one of my deeper fears, being incapable. So it's perhaps no surprise that I admire, desire, and covet useful things. It's part of a larger bent. If we all have a fetish, then mine is good design utilitarianism in the most aspirational sense of the word. If it's useful, or if it makes me feel more organized, capable, or prepared, I want it. In a conversation recently, my partner and I were trying to tease out the differences between the artist and the craftsperson. Now, the Venn diagram on that one very quickly starts to look like a pileup at the hula hoop factory, but this distinction seems clear. Craft is to be used, art to be admired. A chair I can't sit in, no matter how beautiful, is not likely to have a place in my home. Perhaps that's why I'm drawn to materials like wood and iron and stone. They show use, and by virtue of their durability, they invite it. The handles of my grandfather's tools are worn, dark and smooth at the grip from use by three generations of hands. The granite risers in an old staircase bear smooth, undulating witness to centuries of footsteps, their once sharp corners softened. The steel metro shelving in my kitchen doesn't sag under the weight of crockery like the flimsy pressed fiberboard shelves inside the cabinets do. Durable materials proclaim their capability, defy disposability. Handmade objects might be the purest expression of my fetish. Things made by hand bear the marks of competence and utility and skill by virtue of their very existence. They beg to be used because they are already so marked by the touch of human hands. The joints in an heirloom cabinet perfectly matched and still solid decades after the first kiss of chisel against wood. The fine stitching in a quilt, uniform but not machine perfect. My favorite coffee cup, from the wheel of an old potter friend, its opening slightly more oval than round. 
These things bear silent testament to the hours of labor that went into their creation and to the countless hours of learning and practice and mistakes and progress before the making. And since mishap naturally arises out of use, the question of repair is another, somewhat hidden consideration of design and utility. If you're on social media, you're no doubt aware of kintsugi, the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery with seams of gold or other precious metals, and a popular meme of late. The idea of the beautiful scar is poetic, to be sure, but it's the return to service that excites me. A shiny vein of gold is lovely, but more than mere ornamentation, it reminds me of the expertise that gave me back the use of my favorite soup bowl. Knowing how to repair a thing well involves knowing a bit about how it was made, how its materials behave, and how future stresses might reverberate through its restored mass. Repair and recovery, when done well, are demonstrations of competence. If there's an altar at which I worship, it's that. Proficiency, capability, prowess, these are a few of my favorite things. One of the more intimidating skills I've learned, and in turn, taught to dozens of others, is how to start an IV. My EMT and paramedic students had already gotten over an important hump when they learned finger sticks and intramuscular injections. It's no small thing to intentionally inflict pain, to breach the soft, nervy covering of the body, to access its flowing blood even in this small way. A single bead of bright red wicking into a glucose test strip comes after you've taken a stranger's hand in yours and pierced flesh, brought pain, left a wound. IVs up the stakes. If I'm reaching for that catheter in the first place, you're sick enough to need it. Maybe very sick. Maybe you're out of your mind with pain or psychosis and you flail even as I bring the hollow point to your skin. Maybe you're a child and you don't understand why this person you've never met is causing you pain. It's not a moment for mistakes. And so when the needle skims the vein, doesn't gain purchase, slides off to the side, finds no joy, we've gone from doing to fixing. And these, my friend, are two rather different tasks. It's a skill that crops up in so many places. Rescuing a broken mayonnaise, recovering a dropped stitch in a knitting project, navigating back from a missed turn. And it's more than just a mechanical act. Some of the more satisfying experiences I've had as a server or bartender have come from the alchemy of service recovery, using every tool at my disposal to transform a guest's dissatisfaction to delight. Fixing a thing that's broken, particularly if you were the one to do the breaking in the first place, is a powerful act, and inside it are more than a few life lessons. Keeping your cool, doing what needs to be done from inside the fog of insecurity and cortisol that blows in on the wind behind a mistake, that can sometimes be the hardest part. And any deficit in your knowledge base is unmasked. Any shortcuts you've taken are revealed. I'd argue that it takes more skill to fix the mistake than it does to nail it in the first place, so you've got to be on your game. It's the unspoken extension of the old saw about having to know the rules before you can break the rules. Improvisation, and what is an on-the-fly repair if not improvisation, is the most successful when it has a deep back catalog of knowledge, technique, and yes, past mistakes and fixes to draw from. Which brings us back around to those damn pans. I'm getting better at it, both the non-stick cooking and the self-recrimination. Things still stick, and it's best that I expect they always will, at least occasionally. But there's no more teary-eyed scraping away at the spiteful gunk that just won't come up. I enjoy the food I've made, and later, I scour the still warm pan with kosher salt and the residual oil, using my fingers so I can feel the particles release from the pan's surface. It's strangely thrilling a whispering echo of the surge that comes with fixing a fuck up. It may be my imagination, but I think things are sticking less frequently now that I have such a satisfying fix. Maybe I've just relaxed a little at the stove, knowing that there's a reliable solution if things don't go well. If insecurity is the inevitable bedfellow of mistakes, then my personal security system must be an ever-growing repair kit a repository of tools and techniques, past mistakes and the lessons learned, sticky pans, missed IVs, all those glimmering broken places. That was Jessie Shires reading her story, Security Systems, here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. 
production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2018. All the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. And the incredible art on that website is by Katrin Doze, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, and Paul Choi. Music in this episode by Advanced Bass, Tony Molina, X, Phosphorescent, Artie Shaw, John Bryan, Tyler Ramsey, Shin Jung Hyu, Goldman, Sean Lee's Ping Pong Orchestra, and the Dust Brothers, and Colleen. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, handles our website, marketing, and sources our stories. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief and handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. I was sitting at a bar in the room. She said, don't I know ya, but honey, don't I know ya, but honey, don't I know ya, and I don't. and conversations from the people who shape what we consume. You're listening to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour here on 103.7 WPVM LP in Asheville.